the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with Lori Pollich Short. She's the author of When Changing Nothing changes everything. Well, that may sound counterintuitive, but she makes a lot of sense in her book, the subtitle of which is The Power of Reframing Your Life. She'll be joining us later this hour. Well, a lot has uh, gone on over the last several uh, several days, and we're going to try to cover a little bit of it, but um, the, the top news story, I suppose, for the world is that ISIS uh, has uh, claimed the London terror attack that took place over the weekend that killed seven has, uh, has claimed responsibility. Police have arrested 12 in raids, and I heard just uh, late this afternoon that they've released many of them. But the Islamic State claimed responsibility for what is the latest London terror attack through its propaganda wing. Uh, the uh, terror network reportedly claimed a detachment of its fighters crashed a rented van into a crowd of people on London Bridge before going on a stabbing rampage Saturday night, killing seven people, wounding nearly 50 others. However, ISIS gave no evidence to back that claim up, and they, they claim responsibility for uh, successes from their perspective without necessarily demonstrating any real link. Well, earlier on Sunday, the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, she condemned the evil ideology behind the London attacks. She addressed the attacks Sunday after a meeting of the government's uh, COBRA Emergency Committee. She called for a tougher stance against extremists and tougher controls on cyberspace to prevent its use by extremists. She said the measures were needed because terrorism breeds terrorism and attackers copy each other. Well, counterterrorism police carried out raids in East London. They arrested 12 people in connection with the attacks. Searches of a number of addresses in Barking are continuing, the Metro Police said earlier in the day as raids were being conducted. The homes raided included one belonging to one of the three terrorists who carried out the attack. Uh, he lived uh, for three years at that residence. ISIS, as I mentioned, claimed responsibility for a series of attacks in recent years. But police have pushed back in some instances. The terror network announced it was behind the deadly attack on a casino and shopping complex in the Philippines last Friday. But Manila police said that the killer was a Filipino gambling addict, heavily in debt with no terror links. Saturday's horror began at about 10 p.m. Late, uh, local time when a white van veered off the road and uh, barreled into pedestrians on London Bridge. The van's three occupants then jumped out with large knives and attacked people at bars and restaurants in nearby Borough Market, according to police. One observer said her son was stabbed in the stomach by a man who approached him and yelled, this is for Islam. He was 23 years old. He suffered seven knife wounds. Um, he is recovering. He had just uh, stepped outside of the uh, the bar he had been in for a second, and a man ran up to him and said, this is for my family, this is for Islam, and stuck a knife straight into him, as I mentioned many times. Well, that investigation continues. Uh, eight of the uh, of the police off uh, police uh, killed the attackers after arriving on the scene within eight minutes. 
The the, uh, other officers fired 50 shots, London's assistant police commissioner said. The situation these officers were confronted with was critical, a matter of life and death. Three armed men wearing what appeared to be suicide belts had already attacked and killed members of the public and had to be stopped immediately, he said. It turned out the suicide belts were fake. Uh, He went on to say that the van had been rented recently by one of the attackers. Uh, The uh, Prime Minister May said 48 people were injured and many had life-threatening injuries. Uh, Some accounts half uh, do are in critical condition. 36 remained hospitalized on Sunday. A courageous uh, police officer was one of the wounded. He confronted the three knife-wielding terrorists armed only with a baton. He was stabbed in the face, head and leg. Those killed included a Canadian and a French national. Uh, The prime minister said Thursday's national election would be held as scheduled because violence can never be allowed to disrupt the democratic process. Major parties suspended national campaigns on Sunday out of respect for the victims, however. Speaking to Fox News from London, Secretary of Homeland Security John Kelly said that the latest attacks mark the fourth or fifth time that he's had to call his British counterpart in just four months on the job uh, because of uh, terrible events like this. It was the third terror attack to hit Britain in as many months. In March, a British convert to Islam ran down people with a vehicle on Westminster Bridge, killing four, then stabbed a policeman to death outside Parliament. On the 22nd of, Mar- of May, rather, a British suicide bomber killed 22 people and injured dozens at an arena in Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. After that attack, Britain's uh, official threat level for, uh, from terrorism was raised to critical, meaning an attack may be imminent. Several days later, it was lowered to severe, meaning an attack is highly likely. ISIS claimed responsibility for those two attacks as well. Meanwhile, Ariana Grande, she returned to the Manchester stage two weeks after a suicide bomber killed 22 victims at her concert in the city, singing upbeat and motivational pop anthems as the audience cheered loudly for the singer and the entourage she brought with her. She emerged on stage for the One Love Manchester concert on Sunday held at the city's old uh, Trafford Cricket Grounds. Uh, she appeared emotional as she performed Be All Right and Break Free, songs I'm not familiar with, but you might be. Before her performance, she and her dancers held hands in solidarity, saying, Manchester, we're going to be all right. Confetti burst followed uh, the performance and people were uh, comforted. One of the most powerful moments of the concert was when uh, uh, Pars Wood High School Choir sang one of her songs, My Everything with the Singer. The 23-year-old held the young leader's uh, lead performer's hands, both teary-eyed, sang together. Katy Perry was there. She also left her mark with a performance. She sang a uh, stripped-down version of uh, Part of You. Justin Bieber shared similar words on stage, even coming close to crying when he spoke about God and those who died at the concert on the 22nd. The concert on Sunday was to raise money for the victims of the suicide bombing that struck the, at Grande's show. She visited young fans injured in the attack at the Royal Manchester Children's Hospital on Friday. She performed throughout the show, even collaborating with some others on stage. Miley Cyrus was among them. British singer Marcus Mumford kicked off the show and held a moment of silence before the performance. Take That, who are from uh, Manchester, followed that performance. Robbie Williams also uh, performed, changing some of the lyrics uh, from the song strong to fit the occasion. The audience was about 60,000. The Manchester concert comes the day after attackers targeted the heart of London again, killing this time seven people. The attack started with a van plowing into pedestrians and then three men using large knives uh, beyond that. The show was broadcast across the globe. Proceeds uh, will go to an emergency fund set up by the city of Manchester and the British Red Cross uh, to help victims and uh, possibly to avert future 
uh, tragedies that may be similar. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the events here in Portland over the weekend. There were 14 arrests and perhaps even more disturbing some of the weapons that were collected uh, during that and following the clash. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Lori Polich Short. She's the author of When Changing Nothing Changes Everything. It's a matter of perspective. The subtitle, The Power of Reframing Your Life. So we'll talk with her later this hour. Well, Portland police arrested 14 during rival protests over the weekend. Um, there were thousands of demonstrators and counter-protesters that converged in downtown Portland. Uh, a a pro-President Trump free speech rally drew several hundred to a plaza near the city hall on Sunday. And that rally was met across the street by hundreds of counter-protesters organized by immigrant rights, religious and labor groups. They said they wanted to make a stand against hate and racism. Now, we haven't heard anything about what was actually said at that rally. And it's surprising to me with the run up to it. Uh, suggesting that that's what the rally was all about, that there's there's no information about what actually happened there. But by late afternoon, police closed near, nearby Chapman Square, where a separate group of protesters, many wearing masks and black clothing, and identified as anti-fascists, uh, which is kind of ironic given what happened, also demonstrated. Police used flashbang grenades, pepper balls to disperse that crowd after saying protesters were hurling bricks and other objects at officers. Now, the people gathered at the free speech rally organized by Patriot Prayer and counter-protesters at City Hall were not involved in those clashes. Now, the concern was that that group, at least a Patriot Prayer, was going to be the instigator of uh, violence of some sort. That didn't happen. Uh, neither did the counter-protest at City Hall that stood in opposition to Patriot Prayer, or at least what they believed was going to happen there. Well, Portland police um, said the uh, said Sunday evening that several dozen knives, bricks, sticks, and other weapons were seized. The Patriot Prayer event was uh, billed as a Trump free speech rally in one of the most liberal areas on the West Coast. Well, the organizer, Joey Gibson, held a moment of silence for the two men who were stabbed to death and pleaded with the crowd to refrain from violence. He later told them that the goal is to wake up the uh, the liberty movement. It's okay to be conservative in Portland, he said. Uh, last week, Mayor T- uh, Ted Wheeler unsuccessfully tried to have the permit for the free speech rally revoked, saying it could further inflame tensions following the stabbings on the 26th. Now, the suspect in the light rail stabbing, Jeremy Joseph Christian, 35, attended a similar rally. And again, I'm not sure how they're defining similar rally, but that was in late April. He wore an American flag around his neck. He carried a baseball bat and police confiscated the bat. He was then caught on camera clashing with counter protesters. And they've made a link between uh, that appearance and that individual and this group, even though the group said that they had asked him to leave several uh, times uh, previously. Well, in a video posted on Facebook, Gibson condemned Christian and uh, the perpetrator and acknowledged that some rallies have attracted legitimate Nazis. He described Christian as an all-crazy and not a good guy. Matthew Egeman, who's 19 and lives in Corvallis, said that he showed up on Sunday to oppose bigotry and racism, and he worried that hateful rhetoric would embolden others. But he also condemned protesters who show up uh, hoping to provoke violence. Reverend Diane Dullen of the United Church of Christ said in a statement, ahead of the day's events, that any act of violence in the community should be met by nonviolence, saying that we build our hope and our stamina for justice by showing up, part of a coalition of groups that organized the rally to oppose hate. Now, again, I haven't heard if, in fact, that was the core 
of what happened in the uh, the rally that sparked all of this in the first place. I'd be very interested in hearing what rhetoric was said there and if the mayor's suggestion that that was going to be the core subject was actually the case. Well, authorities say that on the 26th, Christian uh, killed two men and injured another on light rail when he tried, uh, when, rather, when they tried to help uh, um, after he verbally abused two teenagers, one wearing a hijab, the other African-American. He is charged with aggravated murder and other counts. The concerns over the Portland rally come after the wider debate in the United States about the First Amendment, often in liberal cities like Portland and Berkeley, California, and on college campuses where violent protests between right and left protesters have derailed appearances uh, by uh, contentious figures. So, um, again, there was uh, violent, uh, violence at this event. It did not uh, come from the original event. It came from the anti-fascists, uh, self-described, Antifa, as they described themselves, who were also found to have had weapons with them. And, again, would be very interested in hearing what was actually said. Was this uh, about hatred and bigotry or not? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I was not there, but the mayor made it clear that that's what this was going to be all about. And I'd be very interested to know if, in fact, that was the case. In other news, uh, Senator Mark Warner, the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, was asked on Sunday if he'd seen any evidence of collusion in the Trump-Russia investigation that began just days after Donald Trump was sworn in as president. The answer was no. It wasn't the full answer. He said there is no smoking gun, but he said there's lots of smoke. Now, Jake Tapper, host of CNN's State of the Union, asked him one of the big questions, of course, is, is there any evidence of collusion that you have seen yet? Is there? Warner responded, and I quote, listen, there's a lot of smoke. We have no smoking gun at this point, but there is a lot of smoke. And again, one of the questions we will have, not only for Director Comey on Thursday, but on Wednesday for Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coats, and NSA National Security uh, Director, Admiral Michael Rogers. I'm going to want to ask them because there have been reports that the president also talked to both of them in terms of asking them to downplay the Russian investigation. That would be very concerning to me. Now, would it be obstruction of justice if it's true? Tapper went on to ask Warner, and he said, uh, and I quote, Jake, I went to law school, but I'm not a practicing attorney. I will leave that so much um, uh, uh, for much better attorneys than I. But clearly, it would be very, very troubling if the president of the United States is interfering in investigations that affect potentially the president and his closest associates. We have uh, seen already the NSA director, the NSA advisor, General Flynn, get fired because he didn't fully disclose his contacts with Russia. We've had uh, the attorney general sessions have to recuse himself because he didn't fully disclose his connection with Russians. We see other reports of Mr. Kushner having a series of contacts with Russians and others. And the American people deserve to get to the bottom of this, Warner said. He said the Senate committee will continue to follow the facts without distraction. Well, on Wednesday, the director of National Intelligence, Dan Coates, Acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe, National Security Agency Director Mike Rogers, and Deputy U.S. Attorney General Rob Rosenstein will testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee in both open and closed-door sessions because some of what they'll cover is classified. The topic is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. And on Thursday, former FBI Director James Comey is scheduled to publicly testify before the committee. And we learned earlier today at the press conference that uh, the president will not not uh, exercise his executive power to prevent that from happening. Warner asked if President Trump would uh, invoke the executive privilege to block Comey's testimony 
and it was thought yesterday that they hoped not. Today it was made clear that he will not. Director Comey was fired by the president, and you have the president himself making derogatory comments, and in effect, at least um, reported to the press, calling Comey a nut job in front of the Republicans, totally inappropriate. Uh, he went on to say, speaking to Tapper, uh, Tapper corrected Warner in front of the Russians, I think you mean, in front of the Russians, Warner agreed. And it would uh, be absolutely unthinkable if the president of the United States asked the FBI director to basically back off an investigation that was directed at some of the affiliates of Mr. Trump. Unthinkable, but not necessarily illegal. So we'll see what uh, what happens. I think it would certainly be unacceptable to the American people if that were uh, to be the case. And we can hope that the investigations will move forward and we will find out what exactly happened. And if, in fact, collusion took place while not rising to the level of illegality, certainly I think would offend the sensibilities of the American people. Let's hope that becomes very clear and we can put this thing behind us um, in a way that uh, that is correct. As I mentioned, the president will not claim executive privilege to block the former FBI director from testifying before Congress. That was confirmed today by the White House. Uh, At a daily White House briefing, Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders told reporters that the president wanted a thorough investigation of facts regarding Comey's testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee this Thursday. Now, Mr. Comey is in something of a uh, between a rock and a hard place in that he testified under oath before Congress that no one attempted to obstruct uh, his investigation. There was no effort made whatsoever. And then you have documents that were leaked, most likely by Comey himself, notes of meeting he had with the president that says the opposite. So even if he says, yes, that is what the president did, then he perjured himself before the committee. It's going to be a, it's a mess already, but it's going to be an even Uh, deeper mess. Anyway, Huckabee Sanders, who is the deputy press secretary, reading a statement on the matter uh, to reporters today, said the president's power to assert executive privilege is well established. However, in order to facilitate a swift and thorough examination of the facts sought by the Senate Intelligence Committee, President Trump will not assert executive privilege regarding James Comey's scheduled testimony. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to talk with Lori Polich Short. She is the author of When Changing Nothing, Changes everything. The power of reframing your life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Lori Short, she offers a revolutionary idea. Change nothing around you and still change everything about your life. Well, with the help of four different lenses, she shows readers the way that you should see, or rather the way uh, you see can have an impact on how you live. If you put on the right lenses, you can reframe whatever comes your way and embrace both the good and the bad, recognizing that every detail of your life is fully in God's sovereign hand. Jesus indicates the power of focus when he says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. It's the um, the easiest way to find lasting meaning and purpose, she says. Change nothing, but see differently. Your perspective has more power than you think to determine the course of your life. Well, Lori Pollitt Short uh, serves as associate pastor at Ocean Hills Covenant Church in Santa Barbara, California. She's a speaker at numerous conferences and colleges, and she's also the author of Finding Faith in the Dark. Today, we're talking about her latest book, When Changing Nothing Changes Everything, The Power of Reframing your life. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, let's just uh, give a, a brief answer to the, the question that you raise in the title or the, the, the concept that you raise. How exactly does changing nothing 
change everything. I think many of us feel helpless uh, as we watch the circumstances around us and we feel powerless. But you suggest that we can change some pretty significant things by not changing those circumstances. Well, that's right. I think that there are things that are going on around us and oftentimes in our lives that we don't have the power to change. Uh, either somebody else's behavior or maybe a situation that we're in or a loss that we've had. And what I suggest in the book is that with the help of these four lenses that really give you more of a multidimensional view of your life, which is actually the way God sees our life, if we can just see a little bit more of the way He sees our life, it causes us to respond differently to our circumstances and then actually make a change in what's going on. And and so that's where I got the title, When Changing Nothing Changes Everything. Well, and I just love it. I, I know that God is um, at work changing us so that we're, we're more like Christ, and this seems to me to be one of the major ways that He does that. And we can miss uh, the work that He intends to do in us if we fail to uh, to look at our circumstances uh, more broadly, if you will, uh, as you suggest. Now, how have you personally learned the importance of changing perspective? Well, when I wrote the first book, um, Finding Faith in the Dark, I discovered through that book that so much of our faith is shaped by the way we see God. And in the book of Job, uh, which is the book of suffering that so many of us turn to, You know that Job never got an answer to why he suffered, but at the end of the book, God takes him on a world tour, and when he sees how big God is and how his story is part of a much bigger story, that really is enough for Job. He he ends up getting healed by a shift in perspective, and so that got me thinking, Georgine, this isn't just true in suffering, this is really true in life, that sometimes what we need to do is just see our circumstances differently. And we all, I think, know the power of perspective. But what I offer in the book is an actual tool you can use to, to see things differently, something you can access every day to help you look at your circumstances differently. And so that's, that's where the four lenses came from and, and this book. Now, you offer a, an illustration that, that paints a picture of how this happens when you look at babies and how we all developed, uh, that our vision starts out very narrow but broadens. That's right. That's right. Um, I, I am actually a stepmom, so I didn't get my child till he was six. But I have taken care of babies before and seen this happen, that um, many of you who have watched this, you, you know that uh, when a baby drops something or something goes out of their view, and in my case, I was watching this little girl, and she dropped her pacifier. It was just right on her shoulder, but she couldn't see it. And so in her mind, it was, it was gone. It, it didn't exist. And in fact, um, psychologists will say that it, part of the developmental process is that we begin to learn that life is actually going on beyond what we see in front of us. And that is the maturing process uh, that all of us experience in life. Well, I think we experience that in faith as well, that God wants us to, to develop what I call a weaned faith, which is a faith to know that God is at work, even if we can't see in our immediate view what He is doing. And this tool in the new book, I think, allows us to to get a glimpse, more of a glimpse of what God is doing. And of course, you know, I tell lots of stories mm-hmm. in the book where this is 
where this has happened, both uh, with people around me and as well as people in the Bible. You write that your view of your circumstances shape what your circumstances become, suggesting that we do have some power to to change, but in a different way than we might have initially thought. Well, that's right. I I think that, uh, that oftentimes the way we see what's going on around us shapes our response to it, which does, in fact, shape what happens in our life. And of course, Acknowledging that God is sovereign through all of this, I still think He works with us in shaping the story of our life. He doesn't work in spite of us. And uh, there's so many examples in Scripture of that. And so uh, I suggest that, that, for instance, with Paul, when he wrote the book of Philippians, he was in prison when he wrote that, and could have seen his life at that point. His ministry was over. He wasn't able to share anymore. He was stuck in a prison cell. But instead, it was those circumstances that allowed him to look around and say, well, what can I do? And he began writing letters. And as we know, his letters that were written in prison have touched millions of lives that he could never have known. But he just looked at his circumstances differently and did what he could. And that made the difference. You write that this is not a book about putting on rose-colored glasses uh, in your circumstances. It's about reframing what you see. That's right. I, I, I know that a lot of books have been written of you've just got to see the cup half full and, and have a more positive attitude, which I, I definitely agree with that that helps. But I would call myself more of a realist than an optimist. And what I am suggesting more in this book is it's more than seeing a cup half full. It's actually seeing what is going around, but we just don't open our eyes to see it. And because we get so focused on either something we want to see happen or something that we don't like that's happening, we are missing a lot of what God is doing around us. And that hopefully is what some of the the stories in this book will encourage readers to do. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there are uh, four frames that you um, that you write about. Uh, we only have a minute before we go to break, but briefly tell us what you mean by a different lens uh, through which to see the world around us, our circumstances and events. Uh, and then we'll talk about what those lenses are. Yes. Well, just briefly, it's the big view, which is pulling back and getting a bigger picture. The present view, which is tuning in to everything that's going on around you. The rear view, which is looking back on some things in your life, as well as your faith memories. And then the higher view, which is really seeing your life as part of a much bigger story. So that is just in a nutshell. And we can train ourselves to, um, to use those, uh, those lenses in a way that helps us to better understand the circumstance we're in. And in the process, perhaps change the course that, that we will ultimately take. That's right. Exactly. Okay, well, we're going to continue our conversation in a few moments, and we'll talk more specifically about these uh, lenses through which uh, we can see uh, our world. Uh, So stay with us. Again, the book is titled, When Changing Nothing Changes Everything, The Power of Reframing Your Life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book, When Changing Nothing Changes Everything, The Power of Reframing Your Life. My guest is Lori Polich Short. She is, serves as an associate pastor at Ocean Hills Covenant Church in Santa Barbara, California. She's a speaker at numerous conferences and colleges. She's also the author of Finding Faith 
in the dark. We're talking about uh, different uh, views that we can have uh, on, on the circumstances of life. The first lens that you write about is the big view. Let's talk about the uh, the big picture um, uh, that helps us to better understand and frame uh, life events. Yes. Well, the big view is when you pull back on your life and get a bigger picture of what's happening right now. And you understand that you're just in a chapter of a much bigger story and that, in fact, you are having an impact on all the people around you beyond what what you can see. Uh, For instance, as a mom, this is so powerful because you know that all the mundane things that you do every day could potentially be making life changes in your child, but not only your child, their children, and that you are part of a much, much bigger chain of events. And so I suggest in the book several stories that, um, that can help us have that bigger view, which sometimes we just need that, especially when we're in circumstances that look dark, because we all know that there are stories of people that, that the dark came before the dawn and was part of the journey of getting somewhere. For instance, Joseph in the Bible, I mean, his journey to power was one that we could never have imagined. But had he not gone to prison, he wouldn't have been in position to to get where he was going to be the number two in all of Egypt. And so there are several stories that, that back that up. But I think that can help us so much sometimes when we get lost in what we're involved in uh, in the immediate. I love the story you tell about World War II uh, pilots over Berlin, Germany, and uh, bullets that were um, were put together by Polish POWs who could probably not have imagined any role they might play in uh, ending that war. And yet the, the story is just so poignant about what little things they did that had such a tremendous impact uh, on others that they right. could not have imagined. That's right. I mean, they were in a factory making bullets, and about the only thing that they could think to do was to not put gunpowder inside. And as the story goes on, it it just so happened that the bullets that they didn't put gunpowder inside were the ones that were shot into a, a, a plane that came out of Great Britain and, of course, saved the lives of the people that were on that plane. And, um, and and I think, again, there's so much that we're doing right now that's going to have an impact on other people and their futures that, that will be beyond what we can see. But sometimes we just need to pull back. And that gives us, I think, the impetus to live each season well. Um, another example I give is just one that comes out of history with Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. I can imagine, you know, when I was growing up, 27 years during he was in prison. I don't know about you, but I would have thought, well, this is my life. And we all know that that was just preparation for what God had in store. And so there are so many stories that back that up, but I just think we get lost sometimes in the immediate, and so we don't always see that. You write that, but our small life quickly becomes a big life when we see the effect of our actions from a wider view. So this this big view, the, the lens that we can use that helps us to see things in a broader perspective, is that first lens. Then you write about the present view. Describe what that is and how seeing the path in front of you and seeing the people on your path can make a difference. 
Yes. Well, the, the present view is really the opposite of the big view. Um, we all know that we can get a big view of our lives, but then we kind of want to rush there. <laughs> we realize that so many of us live either in the past or the future, and God is the great I am. He is doing things in the present all the time. And so what the, what the present view reminds us to do is to be in the now. Because sometimes I think we're, we've got our eyes focused on something we want to see happen, maybe a door that we want to see open. And God may not be opening that door, but He may be opening some other doors that you need to pay attention to. And what I've discovered in my own life is that sometimes that door can lead to another door, which might actually lead to the door you're looking for. It's just a different path. And I think when we are open to what's happening right around us, the people that are around us and and the circumstances that are happening right now, we discover later that, that God is always at work in the now, leading us to that next place. Because I always call him, he's much more of a GPS God than a map God. <laughs> he, only shows, he only shows us the next step. Um, and so we have to stay with him. That's the whole point of this, that we are in relationship with him. And so he's not going to give us the whole plan. He's just going to lead us one step at a time. Yeah, yeah. And I love that you have stories that illustrate uh, each one of these lenses. The third lens you write about is the rear view, looking at your past can bring some clarity. Uh, Some people are a little afraid to look back, but how does that help us uh, in better understanding our circumstances and changing everything? That's right. Well, I offer two ways to look back that are important. One is our family of origin, and I think a lot of us have sincere with that when maybe there's been some negative stuff that's happened or even just things in our past that we don't want to remember. But What I offer is that there's actually been some groundbreaking work on the brain and as far as what we can do to set new patterns. And I think God sometimes wants us to look back so that we can keep what's good and change what's not good. We can be the chain breaker um, because if we don't take that conscious step, we sometimes pass things on unconsciously and even have behaviors and emotions and reactions that we might not know or understand, but they are related to things that have happened to us. So it's just clarifying. But I think as Christians, one of the biggest ways that we need to look back is in our faith journeys that we need to remember our stories of faith. And the Israelites, they used to build stone altars. Whenever God did something in that place, so that whenever they'd go there again, they would remember that God had showed up, and they would tell stories of the things that had happened. And I suggest that we, we still need to do that, because when we lose that, our memory of what God has done, and we don't have as much courage for what's ahead. And we sometimes fear things, that in fact, when we look back, we can say, no, we know our God is faithful. Look what He did. And maybe He didn't change a situation that was painful, but He always works through those situations. And we can point back to things like, gosh, if this hadn't happened, I never would have been equipped for this, Mm -hmm. or been able to minister to this person, or, you know, so forth and so on. So I think that's why the rear view really helps. Again, we're talking about the book, When Changing Nothing Changes Everything, The Power of Reframing Your Life. It's published by InterVarsity Press. That fourth lens lens, uh, uh, encourages us to use the higher view. Explain what that means and how we do it. Yes, that's right. Um, In all of these lenses, Georgine, what I suggest is it's not just one is needed, they, they, they definitely work with each other, but there are times in our lives where we need a specific lens. And the higher view 
is really helping us remember that we're not the center of our story, that God is the center of our story. We're part of what He is doing here on this earth. And if we really believe we're going to be with Him in eternity, this is just a small part of the story. And I think sometimes that can give us courage to live, even our difficult seasons well, as well as remembering that we're not just here for us, that, that the, the resources we've been given, the experiences we've gone through, the pain that we've had, God wants to use that in other people's lives, that, that he, he showed us that in Jesus. And I think being a wounded healer or being someone who has resources because you happen to be born a certain place, that God wants you to share with others that weren't born in that place, that, that we are not just here for us. And that is what the higher view is about. Well, this is a, a wonderful book that helps us to see our circumstances in a new light. And uh, not only is it well, uh, is the content well done, but it's also beautifully written. And I think uh, our listeners would uh, would really enjoy some of the stories that are told and how well they are told. So I thank you for uh, for writing the book and for taking the time to talk with us about it here today. Well, thank you for having me, Georgine. It was a pleasure. Again, the book is titled When Changing Nothing Changes Everything, The Power of Reframing Your Life. I always tell myself I'm not taking any more books home. And then a book like this one comes and it ends up in my home and it's a reference. So um, I think you might enjoy it. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Well, the Supreme Court has decided not to uh, take up the appeal from a Marine who is challenging uh, the religious liberty decision made by the military. They decided today to reject that appeal from a former Marine who was court-martialed in part for expressing her Christian faith in the workplace. Well, lower courts had concluded orders from her military superiors did not constitute a substantial burden on her First Amendment rights. The justices uh, today upheld her court-martial without comment. Um, In other words, they let the lower decision stand. They did not, by uh, virtue of declining to take up the case, uh, rule on it one way or the other, but allow the lower court decision to stand. At issue was the extent of federal law on religious freedom protects members of the armed forces, like Monifa Sterling, who continued posting biblical verses at her desk despite orders from a superior that she remove them. Well, the intersection of free speech on government property, especially within a military context, made this appeal closely watched by a number of advocates on both sides of the debate. The First Liberty Institute that represented Sterling lamented the Supreme Court's call on Monday, saying that because the Supreme Court did not decide to review the case, the travesty below by the Court of Appeals for the Armed Services will now stand, Kelly Shackelford, the CEO and Chief Counsel for First Liberty, said in a statement. He went on to say that the military court's outrageous decision means federal judges and military officials can strip our service members of their constitutional rights just because they don't think someone's religious beliefs are important enough to be protected. Our service members deserve better. Sterling, who was a Lance Corporal stationed at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, originally was court-martialed for various offenses relating to separate incidents, including disrespecting a superior officer, disobeying lawful orders, and failing to report to an assigned duty. But the part of the case that fueled her court challenge involved orders to remove a personalized version of the biblical phrase from Isaiah 54:17, no weapon formed against thee shall prosper, end quotes. Sterling um, taped the verse in three spots on her workspace. 
Uh, Court testimony said that her superior repeatedly ordered her to remove the signs and when she refused, trashed them. In its original four-to-one opinion, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces turned away Sterling's case. We reject the argument that every interference with a religiously motivated act constitutes a substantial burden on the exercise of religion, the court said. Sterling was ultimately reduced in rank and given a bad conduct discharge, which went far beyond that posting, and later left the service. Her legal team acknowledged Sterling did not ask for permission to post or report, or rather repost the verses, but called the earlier ruling against her shameful and wrong. Well, it seems that this may not be the best case to test uh, the bounds of religious freedom and uh, First Amendment, uh, given that there were other offenses attached to it and associated with her court-martial for um, bad conduct. Uh, But this particular case will go no further in that the Supreme Court has decided not to take up the case. Um, Supreme, uh, I should mention that uh, in this case, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, who's with the Family Research Council, he's the executive vice president, and former Delta Force Commander and Travis Weber, Esquire, Director of Family Research Center's uh, Center for Religious Liberty, a former naval aviator and graduate of the Naval Academy, both attended oral arguments for the case before the U.S. Supreme Court, or rather the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, and continued to monitor its status before the Supreme Court. Lieutenant General Boykin commented on the case. Case, and I'm quoting, the Supreme Court's refusal to hear this case has the unfortunate effect of allowing a chill on religious expression in the military to continue and only underscores the need for the Trump administration to root out the anti-religious animus allowed to fester in the military during the Obama administration. Defense Secretary Mattis must consider the many complex ramifications of anti-religious Obamacare policies that remain in effect. The Department of Defense and Congress need to ensure the policies of the United States Armed Forces remain the those that the secretary has outlined mission readiness, command proficiency and combat effectiveness, not squelching religion, which is actually quite necessary to readiness and effectiveness. Holdover personnel from the Obama administration need to focus on these priorities and not on the last administration's social engineering projects that ignore military readiness. If one thing is clear from my 36 years in the military, it is that religious faith is indispensable for the soldier facing danger and the possibility of death in battle. Throughout the history of our magnificent military, faith has played a role, not just in strengthening weak knees and frail hearts, but has actually made a difference in the actions of service members who act on the on this faith to accomplish deeds of valor. To rob the service member of the right to express this faith will be incalculable damage uh, to the forces. Um, uh, Lieutenant General Boykin uh, concluded. Now, I also mentioned um, that uh, a former uh, naval aviator and graduate of the uh, Navy Academy also. Uh, was there, and that was Travis Weber, who's now a, an attorney and director of the Family Research Center's Center for Religious Liberty. He uh, also monitored the case, and this was his response to it. He testified, in fact, before Congress about the need for increased religious freedom protections in the military unrelated to this case. But this was his response, and I'm quoting, The court should have taken the opportunity to clarify that the RF uh, RIFRA protects religious expression in the military, such as what is at issue in this case. Unfortunately, that must wait until another day. In the meantime, we must hope that leaving this ruling in place is not interpreted by anyone as permission to continue you to scrub religious expression from our military. Far too many service members depend on their faith as a lifeline which enables them to cope with and accomplish the many incredibly difficult things our nation calls on them to do. Uh, they shouldn't be asked to give up the very constitutional rights we are asked to uh, asking them to defend. 
uh, again, it seems to me, and perhaps I'm not uh, fully uh, appreciating this case, that it's probably not the best case, given that there were other issues in addition to the exercise of religion, which in this case took the form of posting a note that was not uh, placed without asking permission and then uh, defiantly um, declining to remove it in the context of some broader um, uh, offenses. So uh, I'm not sure this is the best case, but nonetheless, the Supreme Court has decided perhaps for that reason not to take this particular case up. But I would agree with the uh, two gentlemen that the broader issue of the free exercise of religion uh, in the military must be addressed under uh, the current administration. Meanwhile, President Trump announced uh, today his plan to privatize America's air traffic control system and separate it from the FAA, arguing that the federal agency is too antiquated to innovate and in casting the overhaul as the initial step toward improving the country's infrastructure. He wants to turn the air traffic control system into a modernized nonprofit organization that operates on fees paid by the airlines and others that use U.S. airspace instead of taxes. Uh, Trump said in announcing the plan at the White House that we are prepared to enter a great new era in American aviation. It's time to join the future and make flights quicker, safer, more reliable. He argues the changes are necessary because the existing system has been unable uh, to keep pace with the fast-changing aviation industry that now includes commercial space flights and unmanned aircraft systems, also known as drones. The changes also would save fuel, improve safety, and lower operation costs, according to the administration. There are about 50,000 airline and other aircraft flights a day in the United States, and he said today that the existing system was created when the country had about 100,000 annual uh, airline passengers compared with nearly one billion today. Well, both sides of the privatization debate say the system is one of the most complex and safest in the world and winning congressional approval uh, would still be an uphill battle for Trump. Democrats have largely opposed the changes, warning that the proposed broad overseeing the est- uh, rather board overseeing the estimated 300 air traffic facilities and around 30,000 employees would be dominated by airline interests by privatizing our nation's air traffic control system, Trump is once again putting the interests of the pocketbooks of airline executives before the safety of and well-being of American workers and passengers. On the campaign trail, Trump touted plans to improve the country's aging roads, bridges and airports. He was expected to announce a plan shortly after taking office, considering it had bipartisan support. However, fellow Republicans on Capitol Hill were wary about a plan that would add billions to the deficit or increase taxes. And so he made this announcement one of many to follow Um, that um, will slug along or slog along over the next uh, weeks and months of a very contentious uh, session of Congress. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to tell you a little bit about the latest Barna study that uh, focused on the competing worldviews that influence today's followers of Christ, Christians, and how the culture is influencing our theology. That's coming up next right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, we live in a world of competing ideas and worldviews, and in an increasingly globalized and interconnected world, Christians are more aware of and influenced by disparate views than ever. So says the Barnett Group, who's done some study. But just how much have our worldviews and other worldviews crept into Christians' perspective? Well, Barna Research shows that only 17% of Christians who consider their faith important and attend church regularly actually have a biblical worldview. So if Christians are open to non-biblical perspectives... What are they believing? Well, in partnership with Summit Ministries, Barna conducted a study 
among practicing Christians in the country to gauge how much the tenets of other key worldviews, including new spirituality, you may not be familiar with, but it's a worldview, secularism, postmodernism, and Marxism have influenced Christians' beliefs about the way the world is and how it ought to be. Well, Barna's new research found strong agreement with ideas unique to non-biblical worldviews among practicing Christians, and this widespread influence upon Christian thinking is evident not only among competing worldviews, but even among competing religions. For example, example rather, nearly 4 in 10, or 38% of practicing Christians, are sympathetic to some Muslim teachings, an aspect of the study Barna will explore uh, at some point in the future. A few notable findings among uh, the, uh, the research among practicing Christians. 61% agree with ideas rooted in new spirituality, and that's uh, capital N, capital S. 54% resonated with postmodernist views. 36% accepted ideas associated with Marxism. And 29% believe ideas based in secularism or based on secularism. There were a few key demographic themes that emerged from the data that Barna collected. First, millennials and Generation Xers or Gen Xers who came of age in um, less Christianized context are in some cases up to eight times more likely to accept these views than boomers and their elders. The same is true of gender. Males are generally more open to these worldviews than women, about uh, two to one ratio. Another trend is that Americans who live in cities, often melting pots of ideas and cultures, are more accepting of those worldviews than those in either suburban or rural areas. And finally, when looking at ethnicity, Americans of color are, in about half of the cases, more likely than white Americans to embrace these worldviews. Well, what are they and how does it uh, pan out in the study that Barna did? Well, practicing Christians find the claims of new spirituality among the most enticing, perhaps because it holds a positive view of religion, it emphasizes the supernatural, and simultaneously feeds into a growing dissatisfaction with institutions. For instance, almost three in ten practicing Christians strongly agree that all people pray to the same God or spirit, no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. So the way Jesus describes himself, the way the scriptures uh, describe who God is and how God speaks about himself uh, is uh, n- not any more valid than any other means, name, um, worldview uh, that would refer to a deity of some kind. Uh, the belief that meaning and purpose come from becoming one with all that is has captured the minds of more than a quarter of practicing Christians, or 27%. The new spirituality worldview has also um, inched its way into Christian ethics. One-third of practicing Christians, about 30%, strongly agree that if you do good, you will receive good, and if you do bad, you will receive bad. I'm not sure how that uh, pans out for Joseph or for Jesus, for that matter. This karmic statement, though not explicitly from Scripture, appeals to many Christians' sense of ultimate justice. For example, another Barna study found that 52% of practicing Christians strongly agree that the Bible teaches God helps those who help themselves. And just in case you're wondering, that's not in Scripture. And I suppose if you take an eternal view, then you can argue that those who suffer Hardship will ultimately receive good if they do good, um, but that's not what the new spirituality is making reference to. Overall, at least 61% of practicing Christians embrace at least one of the ideas rooted in this new spirituality. And then there's the category of secularism that they also uh, looked into. And by the way, you can find this 
uh, when you go to Barna's webpage, uh, all these details with charts and illustrations that might help you better make use of this information. They, uh, under the uh, secular worldview, prioritize the scientific method as an explanatory framework for life and advances a rational and materialistic view of the world. For the most part, practicing Christians, Barna writes, resist scientism and a Darwinian belief. Only one in ten strongly agree uh, that a belief must be proven by science to know it is true. Believing that human beings are made in the image of God and not just highly evolved matter, Christians see value as in- inherent. Only 13% of practicing Christians strongly agree that a person's life is valuable only if society sees it as valuable. However, a large contingent of practicing Christians are more uh, inclined toward materialism. That shouldn't come as much of a surprise given the culture we're in. The view that material, the material world is all there is. For them, meaning and purpose comes from working hard to earn as much as possible so you can make the most of life. A view held by one-fifth of practicing Christians, African Americans and Hispanics uh, practicing Christians as well as Catholics. Uh, who are inclined to embrace a more works-based approach to faith, are the most open to this view. Younger adults and city dwellers also have materialistic inclinations. Millennials and Gen Xers at about 34 and 32 percent respectively are three times as likely to agree with this premise than boomers and elders at 10 and 11 percent respectively. Now, the researchers found that 29 percent of practicing Christians believe at least one of the secular statements assessed in the project. Now, those three statements are a belief has to be be proven by science to know it's true. A person's life is valuable only if society sees it as valuable. Meaning and purpose come from working hard to earn as much as possible so you can uh, make the most of life. Now, this is in the context of uh, of uh, lifetime rather than an eternity. Then there's postmodernism. And again, I'm uh, referencing the Barna study recently done on uh, how uh, worldviews, uh, competing worldviews are influencing uh, today's Christians. Now, under the heading of postmodernism, Barna points out that emerging as a, a critique of rationalism, the belief that everything can be explained objectively through the scientific method, postmodernism advances the idea that there's so no such thing, rather, as objectivity. Postmodern thought argues that claims of ultimate reality are subjective by virtue of their context. That is, we are all limited by our experience and at least Uh, The best we can know is only what is true for ourselves. I often hear people and believers and non-believers alike make reference to my truth, which indicates there are truths that conflict one another but are at the same time true. For example, almost one-fifth of practicing Christians, Barna points out, that's about 19%, strongly agree that no one can know for certain what meaning and purpose there is to life. Now, it's inconceivable to me that you could be a practicing and serious believer and not believe that there is a way to know the meaning and purpose of life, but that's what their study found. A similar perspective also resonates with many Christians when it comes to views of morality. Almost one quarter of practicing Christians who are part of this study strongly agree that what is morally right or wrong depends on what an individual believes. So there is no objective truth. Less educated Americans are more likely to affirm this view than their college-educated counterparts. Compelled, compelled rather, by a larger story or meta-narrative about the world, Christians are more inclined to uh, defend objective truth, but are somewhat sympathetic to the postmodern insistence that capital T truth claims lead to oppression. Just 15% of practicing Christians strongly agree that if your belief offends someone or hurts their feelings, they are wrong. Your beliefs, that is. Black practicing Christians historically on the receiving end of hurtful ideologies are more likely to agree than are their Caucasian 
uh, counterparts in the Christian faith, 22% to 13% respectively. Now, as a whole, more than half of practicing Christians embrace at least one of the postmodern statements assessed in this research. Those three statements, no one can know for certain what meaning and purpose there is to life. What is morally right or wrong depends on what an individual believes. And if your beliefs offend someone or hurt their feelings, then your belief is wrong. And finally, uh, Marxism was the uh, the final area that they um, w- that they looked into. And Barna points out that Bernie Sanders came very close to winning his party's nomination last year in the Democratic primaries, running on a platform of democratic socialism. He won a great deal of support, particularly among young voters, by tapping into a deep discontentment with economic realities, the economic realities of capitalism. Marxism as a worldview stands in opposition to the economics of capitalism and falls more in line with socialist or communistic uh, political ideologies. Marxism, though, is also found on... uh, uh, and founded rather on an irreligious or even religiously hostile foundation. And though not a single practicing Christian says they would actually vote for a communist party candidate uh, and only 3% for a socialist party, some of the key economic and political tenets of Marxist worldview are supported by practicing Christians, though less so uh, than other worldviews. I'm not going to go into as much detail about that as I have some of the others. But Barna concludes that um, this is what the research means, and I'm quoting, This research really crystallizes what Barna has been tracking in our country as an ongoing shift away from Christianity as the basis for a shared worldview. We have observed and reported on the increasing pluralism, relativism, and moral decline among Americans and even in the church. Nevertheless, it is striking how pervasive some of these beliefs are among people who are actively engaged in the Christian faith. Uh, Brooke Himfel, who's the senior vice president of research for Barna, uh, speaking. She goes on to say that what stood out most to us was how stark the shift was between the boomer and Gen Xer uh, generations. Uh, Himfel remarks, uh, we expected millennials to be more influenced by other worldviews, but the most dramatic increase in support for these ideals occur with the generation before them. It's no surprise then that the impact we see today on our social fabric is so pervasive, given that these ideas have been taking root for two generations. The challenge with competing worldviews is that there are fragments of similarities to some Christian teachings, and some may recognize and latch on to these ideas, not realizing they are distortions of biblical truth. The call for the church and its teachers and thinkers is to help Christians dissect popular beliefs before allowing them to settle in their own ideology. Informing, informed thinking is essential to develop, developing and maintaining a healthy biblical worldview and faith, as well as being able to have productive dialogue with those who espouse other beliefs. Now, I think one, one of the most important aspects of this study and their analysis of it is this call for the church. We're not just talking about pastors, but we're talking about all who have influence, whether you have an official title or not. The call for the church and its teachers and thinkers is to help Christians dissect popular beliefs before allowing them to settle into their ideology, to um, to understand the difference between a biblical worldview and theology and what the world uh, is saying and doing that may sound very similar, but is built on sand rather than a solid rock. 31 minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 35 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I wanted to backtrack because I really wanted to get in that uh, Barna study before our time um, 
ran out and so I did it a little earlier. I didn't think I could do it in one segment, but I did want to mention a couple of things that are sort of out of line with how I would have arranged things today. But um, we learned today from the Washington Free Beacon that Iran is apparently believed to be developing advanced nuclear-related capabilities that could significantly reduce the time it needs to build a deliverable nuclear weapon. And that's according to statements by the Iranian officials uh, that have fueled speculation among White House officials and nuclear experts that the landmark account has um, uh, accord rather has heightened rather than reduced the Islamic regime's nuclear threat. Now, many have been critical, and that's been bipartisan, of that nuclear, that Iran deal. Uh, and the suspicion was that this uh, has just simply bought them time with money that was returned to them, a rather large sum, uh, given back to them in the dead of night, uh, that that has uh, fueled, if you will, um, their uh, capability uh, of advancing their nuclear program. Now, the head of uh, Iran's nuclear program recently announced the Islamic Republic would mass produce advanced nuclear centrifuges capable of more quickly enriching uranium, the key component in a nuclear weapon. Now, work of this nature appears to violate key clauses of the nuclear agreement that prohibits Iran from engaging in such activity for the next decade or so. Fears raised all along before the president uh, moved it forward. Well, the mass production of this equipment, again, uh, reported by the Washington Free Beacon, would greatly expand Iran's ability to sneak out or break out to nuclear weapons capability, according to nuclear verification experts who disclosed in a recent report that restrictions imposed by the Iran deal are failing to stop the Islamic Republic's nuclear pursuits. Now, the latest report has um, reignited calls for the current administration to increase its enforcement of the nuclear deal and pressure international nuclear inspectors to demand greater access to Iran's nuclear sites. Good luck with that. It remains unclear if nuclear inspectors affiliated with the International Atomic Energy Agency or the IAEA, as it's known, have investigated Iran's pursuit of these advanced centrifuges, according to the report which explains that uh, greater access to Iran's sites is needed to verify its compliance with the deal. Now, the report comes uh, with renewed concerns about Iran's adherence to the nuclear agreement and its increased efforts to construct ballistic missiles, which violate international accords, barring such um, behavior. So it begs the question, why do we have a deal with Iran? Why is there an international accord barring uh, the behavior just described if there's no enforcement, if there's no penalty for failing to live up to the agreement that Iran entered into. And that's a big problem with both accords. The U.N., for its part, is unwilling to do anything substantive to have an impact on Iran's willingness to violate the order. And the Iran deal did nothing to prevent Iran from moving forward with what uh, many feared on both sides of the political aisle uh, would be an acceleration of Iran's path toward a nuclear weapon. And then uh, also wanted to mention that the fallout from Monday's shock move by four U.S. Arab allies to isolate Gutter uh, over its uh, ties to Iran was felt across the region today as flights were canceled and Qatari stocks plunged to almost uh, a level of 2009. Well, if you hadn't heard, Saudi Arabia banned all, uh, all Qatari planes from landing in the kingdom, will bar them from its airspace as of Tuesday, the official Saudi press agency reported. Abu Dhabi's uh, state-owned carrier um, and Dubai's Emirates uh, said that they would suspend all flights to and from Gutter, capital of Doha as well from Tuesday, along with the, the United Arab Emirates, low-cost carriers uh, as well. Well, the decision by Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt to punish the Gulf Cooperation Council member 
over its support of Islamist groups as well as their uh, key rival, Iran, pit some of the world's richest nations in a struggle for uh, regional dominance. And this follows the recent uh, visit by the um, U.S. president meeting with many of these heads of states. Well, Gutter's population is smaller than Houston's, but it has a sovereign wealth fund that stakes in uh, with stakes in global companies uh, from Barclays uh, to Credit uh, Suisse. Um, group And it also uh, is a home f- to the forward headquarters of the U.S. military central command in that region. They have uh, somewhat close ties with Iran. Um, it's the birthplace of Al Jazeera. That's where Al Jazeera uh, broadcasts from. And they've been supportive of some of the more radical element of the, the jihadist movement. And while the escalation is unlikely to affect uh, energy exports from the Gulf, it threatens to have far-reaching effects on gutter and raises the political risk for the Middle East, a region grappling with wars, as you know, in Syria to Yemen. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said the U.S. stands ready to help defuse the tension. It's not in the U.S.'s interest to see the GCC sort of unravel right at the time when they're trying to put together a much broader coalition of Arab Islamic states. Allison Wood, an analyst for the control risks in Dubai, says that that would be very destabilizing in the region that's already very unstable. There are limits to the U.S. Uh, giving tacit approval to the kind of pressures that are being applied. Well, Gutter's first response uh, struck a defiant tone. The foreign ministry called the accusations baseless, said they were part of a plan to impose guardianship on the state, which is uh, which in itself is a violation of sovereignty. Uh, Their QE index for stocks tumbled 7.3% at the close of uh, Doha, the most uh, since 2009. And Gutter's credit risk, measured by credit default swaps, climbed the most globally. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Dubai were also among the worst six performers on the day, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. Well, some 76 daily flights are likely to be grounded due to this diplomatic breakdown, of which 52 are operated by Gutter Airways, according to data from scheduling firm OAG, and some 30% of the carrier's uh, revenue could be affected. Aviation analysts are are, uh, warning. Saudi Arabia Airlines, Egypt Air, and Bahrain-based Gulf Air will also halt services to Doha. The uh, Saudi Ports Authority banned vessels flying to the the Qatari flag, rather, or owned by Qatari companies or individuals, it said in a statement. So this is uh, something of an embargo that could have uh, a long-standing effect, or it could change things rather quickly. There are going to be implications for people, for travelers, for business people. More than that, it brings the geopolitical risks into perspective, says the chief executive officer from uh, Nomura Asset Management Middle East in an interview with Bloomberg. Since this is an unprecedented move, it is very difficult to see how it plays out. Well, the Saudis also accused Qatar of uh, supporting Iranian-backed terrorism groups, Muslim Brotherhood and others, operating in the kingdom's eastern province as well as Bahrain. And while Qatar maintains diplomatic and economic ties with Iran, it's not clear how close the two countries actually are. And none of the statements issued on Monday offered evidence of deep cooperation. Saudi Arabia also accused Qatar of supporting terrorist groups aiming to destabilize the region, including the Muslim Brotherhood, Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. Well, Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javed Zarif, he stepped into the fray, saying on Twitter that coercion would not lead to a solution. Iran had probably better 
have, have stayed out to uh, benefit Qatar, who's trying to maintain its ties with these other nations that oppose Iran. Neighbors are permanent. Geography can't be changed, he said. Well, the five key countries involved in the dispute are U.S. allies, and Qatar has committed $35 billion to invest in American assets. The Gutter Investment Authority, the country's sovereign wealth fund, plans to open an office in Silicon Valley. So it is rather a thorny issue for the U.S. as well. Tillerson, speaking at a news conference in Sydney, said it was important that the Gulf states remained unified, and he encouraged the parties to address their differences. He said the crisis won't undermine the fight on terrorism. We are seeing uh, what we're seeing is a growing list of some irritants in the region that have been there for some time. Tillerson said, obviously, they've now bubbled up to the level that countries decided they needed to take action in an effort to have those differences addressed. Well, Monday's actions escalate a crisis that started shortly after President Trump's trip last month to Saudi Arabia, where he and King Salman singled out Iran as the world's main sponsor of terrorism. And that began, of course, a verbal war. Three days after Trump left Riyadh, the state-run Gutter news agency carried comments by Qatari uh, ruler Sheikh Tamim bin Hamid Al Thani criticizing mounting anti-Iran sentiment. Officials uh, quickly deleted the comments, blamed them on hackers, and appealed for calm. Well, Saudi and UAE um, media outlets uh, launched verbal assaults against Gutter, which intensified after Sheikh Tamim's uh, phone call with Iranian President Hassan Rouhani over the weekend in apparent defiance of Saudi criticism. So the back and forth has continued to go well back and forth. Well, disagreements between the six uh, members of the GCC have flared in the past and tensions with Gutter uh, could be traced back to mid-1990s when Al Jazeera television was launched from Doha, providing a platform for Arab uh, dissidents to criticize autocratic governments in the region, except Gutter's. Saudi Arabia closed Al Jazeera's office in the country on Monday, and the Saudi uh, press agency reported, and the members of this uh, collection of states um, uh, members uh, Kuwait and Oman have so far maintained their diplomatic commercial ties with Gutter, but that may change. Gutter also played a key role in supporting anti-regime movements during the Arab Spring and acted against Saudi Arabia and UAE, U- United Arab Emirates interests. They bankrolled the Muslim Brotherhood's government in Egypt. Gutter also hosts members of the exiled leadership of the Iranian-backed Hamas militant groups that rule the Gaza Strip. In 2014, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain temporarily withdrew their ambassadors from Gutter, so this is not unprecedented. That dispute centered on Egypt following the army-led ouster of Islamist President Mohammed Mursi, a Muslim Brotherhood leader. This time, Saudi Arabia, along with Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, gave Guttery um, uh, diplomats 48 hours to leave, so they were a little more gracious. And the crisis crumbs, uh, comes rather shortly after Moody's Investor Service cut Gutter's credit rating by one level to AA3, the fourth highest investment grade, citing uncertainty over its economic growth model. Gutter is economically and socially most vulnerable from food and other non-energy imports. Uh, Paul Sullivan, who is a Middle East expert at Georgetown University, if there is a true blockade, and this could certainly develop into one, this could be a big problem for them. Rule-stopping citizens of the UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain from even trans, uh, transiting via uh, gutter could cause significant disruptions. And so this just uh, began today and is very likely to develop over the uh, short term. 46 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, hundreds of mourners gathered today at Christ the King Catholic Church in Milwaukee to honor the life of Rick Best, one of the two men that were killed on the 26th of May during the violent attack on a MAX train. The funeral mass began with the song, They Will Know We Are Christians by Our Love. Many of us know the lyrics, We Will Walk With Each Other. We Will Walk Hand in Hand. Mr. Best was 53 years old. He worked as a technician for the City of Portland's Bureau of Development Services. He was headed to his home in Happy Valley when a man on a green line train began yelling hateful epithets at two teenage girls. Three men on the train stood up to intervene, were brutally stabbed. Two of them did not survive. Best is survived by his wife, three teenage sons, and a 12-year-old daughter. The family are parishioners at Christ the King, a red brick engraved with the best family name and circled with white roses and stones, uh, served as a small memorial in the church courtyard. A parishioner and friend of the family stopped at the memorial before the service. Ida Bauman says he's a modern-day martyr. Well, Reverend Rick Paparini also used the word martyr in describing Best's actions, saying, I was absolutely shocked to hear this tragedy, but I was not shocked to hear what Ricky had done, he said. He quoted scripture, love one another as I love you. No one has greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. It's a privilege to love, Paparini went on to say. I think Ricky understood love this way. He saw it as an opportunity and a privilege, and that's why he responded the way he did on the 26th of May, 2017. End quote. In a brief eulogy, Best's son, Eric Best, said his father understood deeds were more important than words. He said his father was a child of God. Archbishop Alexander Sample, he described the actions of those who stood up on the train that day, an amazing demonstration of human love and dignity and respect for one another. And when he learned that Best had been one of the men who stood, he said he was proud, proud that a member of our own Catholic community here in Portland, Portland area rather, really witnessed to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to love another as we love ourselves, as our Savior taught. Well, the Catholic Mass ended with a message from the Quran when a, a member of the local chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations spoke. The two young women on the train were the targets of aggressive um, hate speech, he said, before Best and two others stepped in. He said, and I'm quoting, if I had the opportunity to see Best today, I would simply say thank you. Thank you for being the father I strive to be and the human being I strive to be. Husani, the spokesman, said the Quran says that whoever takes one life, it's as if he destroyed all mankind. And the reverse is also true. He said he believed Best saved the uh, two teen girls' lives. Well, Mr. Best was a 23-year uh, Army veteran, a one-time candidate for Clackamas uh, County Commissioner, His burial was with the military honors at Willamette National Cemetery. Many in the community were there to say their final goodbyes in gratitude for what he had done in saving those two girls and standing up against uh, this violent attacker. Also, I wanted to um, ask you to pray for Pastor Rich and Jordy Jones. As you know, the trial involving the murder of his daughter, their daughter, Nicole, resumes tomorrow and Pastor Jones on his Facebook page had some words that were really very touching about how he and his wife are enduring this situation as followers of Christ. He writes on his Facebook page, as the trial begins this week, and that I believe is tomorrow, uh, for one who murdered our daughter, I'm reminded of a note I wrote about several years ago. Pain is a difficult part of life. We try to avoid it at all costs, but pain is a necessary part of growing, and sometimes pain is part of God's doing something vital in our character. As we grow in Christ, we also come to understand that in God's hand, every pain can be used for His glory. I vividly remember a time when Nicole, his daughter, 
Our oldest daughter became gravely ill. Her temperature shot to 106.5 degrees. She had a rash on the palms of her hands and soles of her feet, and when she moved, every joint in her body was racked with excruciating pain. The doctors were baffled. They tried every test they could think of to find the reason for her condition. At one point, they decided they needed to do spinal tap. To do this, they said, everyone would need to leave the room. Why is that necessary? The pastor asked. In order to do this procedure, the doctor said, we'll have to um, to fold her into a ball and hold her completely still while we insert a needle into her spine. Because every joint hurts in her, this will cause so much pain, it's best if the family is not here to see it. Everyone left the room in silence. But I had to stay. I will not leave, he said. In fact, if she must suffer that much pain, I will do it. She will be my arms. She will know my. Uh, uh, she will know she is safe. She will know she is loved. They understood and they agreed. In the end, no one really knew what caused her condition. They gave her gamma globulin treatments, and she was able to go home as her body slowly returned to normal. As parents, we want to spare our children from suffering, yet there are times when suffering and pain must come. But we are in the arms of a loving Heavenly Father, and we are safe, and we are loved. Our sweet daughter Nicole is now safely home, and we are the ones left with pain. But this we know, God never leaves us. We are loved, and one day we will all be safely home. Your servant, Rich. Again, quoting from the Facebook post of Pastor Rich Jones from Calvary Chapel in Hillsborough. The trial of the man who is accused of murdering his daughter, Nicole, resumes tomorrow. And I wanted to uh, share that with you and remind you uh, to continue praying for uh, Pastor Rich and uh, Jordy Jones, the extended family, certainly um, Nicole's children, uh, her husband, um, who is now widowed, uh, the church at Calvary Chapel, and all of those who are connected with this case. And certainly that justice would prevail, and perhaps by some... Some means that's incomprehensible that this young man would repent of his actions and perhaps even come to know Christ himself. I think about uh, the judge uh, who's been a guest on this program a couple of times, uh, Tom Cole, who uh, whose daughter was also murdered and who now has a full time ministry uh, practically uh, around the subject of forgiveness. That has taken him all across the country. He's been involved in prison ministry and is involved in a transformative work here in the state of Oregon as well. It is amazing to see what God can bring out of such unnecessary tragedy, but he somehow redeems every event when we surrender to him. And Nicole knew him. She trusted him. She was a follower, and she is now with him. But justice must be carried out here while we remain, and that resumes tomorrow. So please pray for Pastor Rich uh, and Jordy Jones, uh, as that trial will be a a very difficult season of being reminded of all of those details. Well, uh, tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to uh, a hearty conversation. And uh, my guest uh, tomorrow, as I'm quickly trying to get to my uh, screen, Stephen Bauman will be my guest. The book is titled Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear. And after some of what we shared earlier today about how Christianity is being shaped by our culture rather than the other way around. This might be a good conversation to find some encouragement and direction in. So I hope you'll join us. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. 
Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.